We are at the conclusion of our series on the Lord's Prayer. We have been looking at the different um, clauses, phrases uh, within the Lord's Prayer and wondering about how they uh, shape not only our understanding of the Lord's Prayer, but even more importantly, how they understand our, um, how we understand how our prayers are to be shaped through the agenda that perhaps Jesus lays out for us. So we've been looking at a variety of topics such as to pray is to change, to pray is to trust, to pray is to forgive, to pray is to examine, uh, as means by which to think about what do we do when we go to God in prayer and what are we inviting God to do in us and what are we inviting ourselves to do in response to what God has been doing in our lives. So today we look uh, finally at one last clause of the Lord's Prayer, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And to do so, uh, looking at the theme to pray is to love, we look at two uh, passages of scripture found in the Gospel of John. Uh, The first, very familiar, hopefully to you, you see it at every football game, John 3:16, and another story which perhaps this is familiar as well, but concludes uh, this great gospel of John. So John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And then these verses from John 21, beginning at the 15th verse. These uh, verses are uh, in the midst of a story where the resurrected Jesus uh, appears on the beach of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, and finds there the disciples who have been struggling to fish and have not been able to catch anything. And the, um, the appearance of Jesus arrives on the beach, and the disciples are uh, confused as to who this is. And Jesus calls the men uh, just after he's instructed them how best to fish, and they catch a whole bunch of fish, and they come back in to the beach, and Jesus has a breakfast there for them of loaves and fish. And following that comes this conversation that Jesus has with Simon Peter. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter felt hurt because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. 
Very truly, he continues, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And after this, he said to him, follow me. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. By your grace and through your mercy, we ask, O Lord, that you will allow these words to come to be the means of your Holy Spirit such that they would point to the word just read and to the word made flesh in Jesus the Christ. For we pray this in his name. Amen. I know that you have heard me talk before of the privilege I've had to walk the coastline of Normandy, France, and to take in as much as one can really take in the enormity and gravity of the Allied invasion beginning on June the 6th, actually June the 5th, and you consider the airborne 1944. It was, in many respects, the turning point of World War II and set into motion the relatively quick dismantling of the Nazi war machine. Do a little reading and you soon come to grasp the scale of the human planning, the human ingenuity, and the human sacrifice that went into this great push against the wall of the Axis resistance. And in both of my visits to these sacred beaches and hedgerows and farm fields, I couldn't help but think of what it must have been like to be a member of the Nazi occupiers once seeing and feeling and experiencing the advance of the Allies. It must have been like, I can't imagine what it must have been like for a young German soldier sitting in a pillbox looking over the English Channel at the Allied Armada appearing out of the mist and hearing above the thousands of airborne falling from the sky. What must have it been like to see this rising force advancing upon your position? There you were at the epicenter of the clash of civilizations, of kingdoms, of powers, and of glories, and and wondering who is going to win this epic battle, this game of thrones. The chronology of human history is chronicled to a large degree around the clashes of human forces. The Greeks, the Romans, the Ottomans, the the British, the Americans, the Jews, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, you name it. The memorials of history are often set around the clashes, the violent clashes between cultures and empires to determine whose kingdom it will be, who gets the power, who commands the glory. The Bible itself, in large part, is chronicled around such conflict. Will it be the Egyptians or the Israelites? Will it be the Israelites or the Canaanites? Will it be the Philistines or the Israelites? Will it be the Israelites or the Babylonians? Will it be the Jews or the Romans? Even the story of God has been primarily narrated through the military chronology of competing societies. Which armies will subdue or be subdued? Which kingdom will prevail? Which power will dominate? Which glory will be honored? 
Which may explain, perhaps, that when the church received the teachings of Jesus in the Lord's Prayer, somewhere along the way, the early translators and scribes and teachers took it upon themselves to take Jesus' original prayer, which ended with, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, period, full stop, and felt the need to add a postscript, or shall we say a reiteration, or a final summary of the prayer. Putting a a few words more into Jesus' mouth for added effect, thus giving us these final words of the prayer, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. You may have been reciting those words your whole life and not known that likely Jesus never said them. Not to suggest that these final words are any less significant. In fact, they may be even more significant because the church felt the need to add them so as to call attention to the fact that when Jesus shows up, a new kingdom is advancing. A new power is taking over. A new glory is expecting surrender. The armada of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is appearing out of the mist. Now, unfortunately, the church has made the mistake over time to think that when we pray, thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, that we should assume that to be Christian is to strap on the trappings and the armor and the weaponry of worldly kingdom and power and glory and advance our cause against all cultures, mowing down people who are in our way. Unfortunately, church history is replete with crusades and inquisitions and Violence and near genocide and wars and political action committees, all in the name of the one whom the prophet named the Prince of Peace. Now, of course, that is not the entirety of church history. Had it been the entirety of church history, we would not have survived. We would have fallen just like Rome or Greece. Inside, There has always been the core of the church, which has always understood that when we pray, thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, that what we're praying about is the first and new commandment of Jesus, which is to love. That to pray for God's kingdom, God's power, God's glory to reign is to pray for the love of God to rule and to reign in ourselves and in the world. The algebra works this way. If thine equals God and God equals love, then thine equals love. And if thine also equals the kingdom, the power, and the glory, then it stands to reason that love equals the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Which is to say that the armada of love has stormed the beach. The invasion of love, the advance of love, it is to look out from our little pillboxes and see in Jesus Christ and his merry band of followers the movement of love onto our beach. And so prayer in the end becomes ultimately the prayer of surrender. Surrendering to the advance of love 
the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. As we pray to change, as we pray to work, as we pray to trust, as we pray to forgive, as we pray to examine, it all leads to this ultimate surrender when we give ourselves up and join the advance. Lay down our arms, take on a new uniform, and join the invasion. For God so loved the world that He sent His only Son. So from the very beginning, when after his resurrection, Jesus sits with Peter on the beach. Not the beach of Normandy, but the beach of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus says again, do do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus says the third time, Peter, do you love me? And Peter gets annoyed and says, jeez, how many times are you going to ask me? Hello? Yes, yes, yes. But we who have been listening to the conversation and who have been praying this Lord's Prayer, we can figure it out, right? Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me? Do you love me? Because, Peter, that's the kingdom. That's the power. That's the glory. Civilization, Peter, is turning on a dime. And you better get used to it. A couple of weeks ago, Peter, you picked up a sword and lopped off a guy's ear. But Peter, that isn't the game anymore. So, do you love? Do you love? Do you love? Because from now on, it's not about swords. It's about tending sheep. It's about feeding lambs. And the only ammunition you got is love. And the only weaponry you got is love. There is no more eye for an eye. There is no more tooth for a tooth. It's love. It's love. It's love. So no surprise that Peter is the one who a few weeks later leads the advance, generals the army up the coast of Israel, up to Gentile land, to enemy land, to foreigner land, and goes face to face with who? A general in the Roman army. A centurion named Cornelius. But Peter leaves the sword behind and says to Cornelius, God is seeking to love the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And God, Cornelius, has this huge, huge, huge tent And he wants you and your family inside. He doesn't want just Jews anymore. He wants everybody because God shows no partiality. The army is moving, Cornelius, and there's only one thing you can do. Surrender. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That's the prayer of surrender. It's the surrender to the armada of love. Now, that sounds all good, right? Surrendering to love. Who can argue with that? Sounds like a good song. Good love song. 
in theory, nothing could sound better. Surrendering to love. Who's going to object to the theory of love, right? Blah, blah, blah. Love, love, love. Who votes for love? Raise your hand. Boy, that was slow. (laughs) Who could be against love? But here's the deal. Love is costly. And love sometimes brings casualty. Love is costly. And love sometimes makes you a casualty. And so we pray, right? We pray because on one hand, love is the easiest thing in the world to do when you think that love is coming back to you. But love doesn't always come back, right? Love sometimes gets met with resistance, gets met with defense, gets met with betrayal, gets met with outright defiance. Just ask my friends Lauren and Eric. I've changed their names, but Lauren and Eric come to me and talk to me about their boy Ian. And Ian is the son that they adopted from another country, and they got him when he was three years old and three months old, and they and they loved on him every day of that boy's life, and they just did the best parenting job they knew how, and he was more precious to them than they could have imagined, and he was a precious little boy all the way up into the age of 14. Then things went just dramatically south, and it was just a parent's nightmare. And when Ian turned 18, he told Lauren and Eric that he hated them and hoped never to see them again. And he packed up his things, and he has made good on his promise. He has never seen them again. And what's left for Lauren and Eric is this just huge hole in their hearts. Love is costly. Love sometimes makes you a casualty. When civil rights activists Michael Schwerner, Andrew Goodman, and James Cheney made their way down south in 1964 to love their brothers and sisters by registering them to vote, their love was not much appreciated by the, by the brothers of the Ku Klux Klan who hunted them down like dogs. And it took a while after they disappeared, these three activists, to find their shallow graves. Love is costly and sometimes makes you into a casualty. When you watch a little Honduran girl grow up in a school that you helped to build in a little Honduran village with every hope that she will take advantage of every opportunity, hopefully maybe someday to go to college and to find a good job. But a couple of years after getting her diploma, she turns to prostitution to help support her drug habit. Your heart sinks and your spirit despairs because love is costly. And sometimes it doesn't work out the way you wanted it to. When Martin Luther King was asked about why he insisted on his civil rights movement to be nonviolent, he said because the Bible said that's the only tool they have is the tool of love. When one rises to love, he said, he loves men not because he likes them, but because their ways, not because their ways appeal to him, but he loves every man because God loves him. And he rises to the point of loving the person who does an evil deed while hating the deed that the person does. I think that's what Jesus meant, King continued. I think that's what Jesus meant when he said, love your enemies. I'm very happy, he continued. Jesus didn't say, like your enemies. 
because it's pretty difficult to like some people. Like is sentimental, and it's pretty difficult to like someone bombing your home. It's pretty difficult to like somebody threatening your children. It's difficult to like congressmen who spend all their time trying to defeat civil rights can, can continue. But Jesus says, love them. And love is greater than like. Love is understanding, redemptive, creative goodwill for all men. And it is this idea, it is this whole ethic of love, which is the idea standing at the basis of the nonviolent student movement. April 4th, 1968, Martin Luther King died from an assassin's bullet. Love is costly and sometimes makes you into a casualty. When God tries to love the world through a 33-year-old Palestinian rabbi, you end up with a man writhing in pain on a cross saying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Love is costly and sometimes makes you into a casualty. So why? Why surrender? Why try? Why join this armada of love? Why risk the hurt, the casualty? Why pray to love? Why not just say whatever and not make the effort? Curl up into our own little selfish shells and make it all about us. Three words. Three words from the Apostle Paul. Love never ends. Love never ends. Your smarts will cease. Your money will go away. Your anger will eat you up. Your bitterness will make you sour. Your resentment will foul you down to dust. But love, according to the apostle, never ends. It's risky, it's costly, it is fraught with casualty. But once love is expressed, it never goes away. It never ends. Any love you exercise is for the ages. Thornton Wilder in his great novella, The Bridge of St. Louis Ray, ends his story with these words, Our love will have been enough. All those impulses of love return to the love that made them. There is a land of the living and a land of the dead, and the bridge is love, the only survival, the only meaning. Let us love the country of here below, wrote Simone Bay, the great French mystic. Let us love the country of here below. It is real. It offers resistance to love. So I know there's some resistance around you, right? There are people you don't like, people with whom you disagree, people who voted for the other candidate, people whose lifestyles you don't appreciate, people who do not respect the things you respect, people who have betrayed you, porcupines who won't let you get close. But here's the deal. Every single human being on this planet is complicated. Every single human being has a story, 90% of which you have not a clue. And every human being on this planet 
says and does stupid things. You should know you're one of them. And Jesus says, judge not, that you be not judged. Put down the sword and take up the only firearm this army carries, the weapon of love. And maybe someday you will come to understand what you have yet to understand. Let us love the country of here below. It is real. It offers resistance to love. Love is costly. Sometimes it makes you into a casualty. So we pray. We pray to surrender. We pray to change our uniform. We pray to take up the only firearm that God has for us to use. We pray to love. The only survival, the only meaning, the only thing that never ends. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.